Hey, church family, I'm glad you're tuning in. It's good to get together in this way around God's Word. I'm excited today to be able to open up the Bible and teach God's Word to you. And I hope you found a place and I hope you're situated so that we'll be able to spend these next few moments together in God's Word. In fact, if you have one, go on ahead and turn with me to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. We've been in the book of Ruth for a number of weeks now. We're in chapter 2 for today, and I'm excited as far as what God has for us in this particular chapter. The book, of course, it's a beautiful story, but it's a, a story, however beautiful it may be, that opens up in a very sad way. It's a, it's a book that opens up with tragedy and death. Uh, you'll recall a man by the name of Elimelech, along with his family, decide to, once their country is hit with famine, to go off to a land called Moab. And the interesting thing about that is, you have to understand, Moab have always been the ancient enemies of God. Moab represents everything that stands opposed to God. Moab is a place that represents me at the center of my life, not God. And so here you have the people of God arising, leaving the very land that God gave them because of His promise due to a famine and willing to enter into the land of, prom- of compromise, land of compromise. And so Elimelech, as a result of this decision, not only costs himself, he costs his own family. This was a decision that not only impacted his life, it was a decision that ultimately impacted his children as well, which is an important point that we looked at last time, and that was the big idea. And that is, it's important for us to understand that the decisions that we make don't just impact us. They impact the people around us. They don't merely have consequence for us. They have a consequence for those who come after us. Elimelech, for us men, is a case study of the kind of men not to be, not to be. We're going to see today, thankfully, a case study with a man by the name of Boaz, who we'll be introduced to in a moment, who's a case study of who we are to be. But in Elimelech's case, Elimelech was someone who was prepared to lead... Not in hard times, but only in easy times. He was someone who wasn't seeking to make a decision in order to leave a legacy. He was someone who who was making decisions out of a good time. And because Bethlehem was not delivering what he wanted for himself and for his family, he chose to sacrifice all of that for a land that he thought would. You see, Elimelech moved out out of a desire to want to spare his own life and those who were connected to him, only to find out that he died along with his sons. The very thing he was trying to avoid ended up being his lot, which is a point for us. It never is in our interest to want to sidestep God's will and God's ways and God's word out of an interest to save our own necks. It's always in our interest to follow God, no matter how challenging or trying things may be. Well, this resulted in Naomi losing not only a husband, but also two sons. And so here she is, having seen three funerals. And along with that, she has daughters who have no husbands of their own. They're women and widows in a foreign land who are destitute and who are just out of loss with what to be able to offer themselves. And now they're trying to make do as best as they can. 
good news is God in his kindness ends up visiting this land of Bethlehem with a harvest. And so now things are beginning to turn around. Naomi gets word of this and she decides to arise and return back to Bethlehem, a decision that she should have made long time ago. And so now we're beginning to see God's hand upon her life and we're seeing her heart moved in the direction not of sin and rebellion and folly, but in the direction of repentance and commitment and loyalty to the God that she should have never turned her back upon in the first place. And Orpah and Ruth decide to join her. But it's not long where Orpah, because of Naomi's insistence on the part of these two women, for them to go back and to start lives of their own in the land that they're familiar with, decides herself to go back to. Orpah is a picture of someone who, on the outward, on the outside, seems to be someone who's devoted to God, but when tribulation and when trials hit, only decides to go back to the life that they came initially from. Ruth, on the other hand, decides to follow Naomi no matter what. And so she's a case study. She's a picture for us in the Old Testament of what true conversion is all about. True biblical conversion is all about. Ruth is someone who doesn't just want Naomi. She wants Naomi's God. She's not someone who merely wants Naomi's God. She wants Naomi's people. Ruth is someone who's prepared, as we saw in Ruth chapter 1 in verses 15 and 16, to follow this God of Naomi's no matter what. We can recall what Jesus said in Luke 14, anyone who come after me, anyone who wishes to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. No man who has not hated father and mother and wife and spouse and children and even himself is not worthy to be my disciple. Ruth is that person. And so Naomi realizes that this woman is in for the long haul. And so they, they make the trip back to, to Bethlehem. And now here they are in Bethlehem to be received by the people that they haven't, she hasn't seen for over a decade. And the town is stirred as a result of Naomi's return. And they're wondering, is Naomi the same? Is this the Naomi we knew to begin with? What all has changed with her? And who exactly is it that she has with her? Naomi is now at a, at a place where she's be able to begin to put her life back together with God's help now that she's turned, she's turned back to Him. Chapter 2 opens up in a very interesting way. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We're told that Boaz is, to use the language of the text there, a worthy man. The, the word there, worthy, means he's, he's a man of, of valor. He's a man of valor. He's, he's a man of war, is ways in which that word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. He's a man of wealth. He's, he's a man of wherewithal. The word worthy has to do with the fact that Boaz is, is someone who has, is, it, is an exemplar. He, he's, he's a model citizen. He's, he's an example man for all other men. He's, he's a man worthy of imitation. I think this is important for us men tuning in. 
I, th- I believe what God is trying to say there is, if I can ask, when people see our lives, when people think of our lives, do they have in mind a man who is worthy of imitation? Because, you see, that was, that was Boaz. Boaz was someone, if anyone had to think of, someone to emulate, someone whose life to follow after, he was it. I think that's what God wants in our day and age. I think that's what we need among the men in our day and age. A lot of times when we look in our society as far as cues as to what true manhood is, we don't get them. But here we get a picture of true manhood for us men. And I'm thankful for Boaz because he models for me what it means to be a man of, of war. He's a man ready to fight. He's a protector. He's, he's a provider. He's a defender. And that's what true manhood should, should be about. We need more and more men in our churches and in our communities and in our world who are prepared to put their necks on the line for the good of others. That was Boaz. Boaz was someone whose reputation and whose character preceded him. Boaz was, was a man who was not feared in, in a negative or toxic sense, but he was a man who every mother told their son to follow after. Every wife or soon-to-be wife or would-be wife hoped their husband would be. Boaz was the man that you would want to see in your societies. And here, this, this man is, is, brought, is brought up. I think this is important because I think a lot of, in a lot of cases, feminism, especially third wave feminism, has really sold us, men and including women, a bill of goods. Um, they've, they've, they've presented a promise that isn't true. And as much as there is a lot of negativity and problems with a lot of the ways in which manhood is portrayed out there in our society, Boaz is not that. We don't want chauvinism, but we do want chivalry. We, we don't want men who are prepared to use their manhood at the expense of women, but we do want men, men who are prepared to use their manhood in, in the interest of other woman, women. And that's Boaz. That's Boaz for us. And I'm glad that we're able to be introduced to him right here and right now in this text. And in God's providence, we've been seeing he happens to be one who is related to Naomi through her husband, Elimelech. The text goes on in verse 1, and it says that he was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Boaz was someone who never left Bethlehem, even though a famine struck, struck that land. Elimelech, on the other hand, was, which tells us it wasn't everyone in Bethlehem who left once the famine struck, which tells us something, that Elimelech made a choice that he didn't have to. You see, I know it's hard for us to receive sometimes. When we find ourselves in situations that cause us to compromise in our lives, compromise in our relationship with God, and compromise in our faith, a lot of times we want to believe that that was our only choice. But the Bible tells us, no temptation has taken you except what's common to man. But God is faithful, 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but will make a way for you to escape. That 
you may be able to endure it. Boaz believed it. And Boaz lived his life by it. And Boaz's life was blessed as a result of it, not Elimelech. And so Boaz is a picture of the person who didn't go in the way of sin. Who, when the temptation hit, he didn't run in the direction that everybody else would. Rather, he chose to obey God, even as difficult as it was. And his life is blessed as a result of it. Look, his reputation and his character has preceded him. He's known as a worthy man, a man of war, a man of wealth. He's, he's been blessed as a result of his obedience to God. He's a man of wherewithal. Wherewithal meaning when times are difficult, when challenge strikes, when tragedy hits, when adversity comes knocking on the door, Boab is a man of wherewithal. He's a man who, who, who doesn't flight, he doesn't run away, he doesn't shy away, Rather, he assumes responsibility. He's the kind of guy who figures out what the solution is to the problem. He's the kind of guy who says, what can be done? He's the man who's prepared to put his own neck and his own life on the line in interest of those who could be protected and defended by it. That's Boaz. That's what we need. A man of wherewithal. That's what we need right now. I'm praying for that among our leaders with, with this pandemic that's hit our land. What we need in the White House, what we need on a local level among our leader, leaders, what we need in our churches, among our pastors, what we need in our communities, what we need in our homes are men and women of wherewithal. People who aren't prepared to run away when adversity strikes, but are prepared to assume responsibility. That was Boaz. And here we see in the text in verse 2 that Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Notice, she, she approaches Naomi and she asks for permission. She asks for favor. You, you notice already you've been with us for a number of weeks. Ruth and Naomi's relationship is beautiful. It's a beautiful relationship. Oftentimes, those sort of relationships could be on the rocks. But in this case, we see a picture of a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law who, who've managed to model a, a precious and beautiful relationship where Naomi's prepared to, to have Ruth's interest at heart and Ruth is prepared to put Naomi's well-being ahead of, of her own. And here she approaches Naomi and she asks to go out and to, to, to glean. Ruth is now another woman of uh, a worthy woman, a, a woman who is a woman of valor, like the Proverbs 31 woman. Not only do we see it in, in Boaz's case, we're now seeing it in Ruth's case. You see, Ruth shows us here in this passage what faith looks like. Did you know that faith has feet? A lot of times we, we think, I'm just going to trust God, okay? I'm believing God. Well, what does that mean? For many of us, faith in God or belief in God means I just sit. And I'm just waiting upon the Lord, we say. Well, in the Bible, waiting is a very active thing in God's mind and in the mind of, of God's people. Every one of God's people that you notice who wait upon the Lord are very active, believe it or not. If waiting for you upon the Lord, perhaps for a spouse... Or maybe you're unemployed because of 
what's going on in our, in our day and age, and, and you're looking for work. Or maybe you're someone hoping to get into that school that you've been working so hard to get into, or maybe transfer from one school to another, or, or perhaps you're looking for a ministry opportunity, or you want to go overseas for, for missions, or in any case, you're believing God for something, okay? Does faith to you look more like, like this, where it's this passive deal, and God has to just do everything? I mean, after all, how else is it going to be God? Or is faith something like what we see with Ruth? Because Ruth has faith. And Ruth is waiting upon the Lord. But notice, she wants to get out of the house and go out into the field and glean. You see, Ruth has no problem holding together a faith in God and a going out and working and believing that God is going to use her confidence in Him and her desire to put herself out. I know I, I get a lot of people who I sure hope he would, he'll come around and, 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 and be the man. I, I sure hope I'll find a woman. But my question a lot of times for people is, um, well, are you dating? Um, are you, when's the last time you've talked to someone? When's the last time you've asked someone out? When's the last time you've been in any sort of group where you can actually see a relationship potentially happen. You see, it's faith and taking steps. A lot of times people will tell me, man, I, I sure want to be evangelistic. Man, I, we got to get the gospel out. But okay, I want you to believe that God can use you, but are you at least putting yourself in paths where you can actually have gospel conversations? When's the last time you've opened your mouth and, and said something about Jesus? about the Bible, about faith, about spiritual things. You see, it's not enough for us to have faith in God if we're not prepared to also step out in faith. Ruth is someone who not only has faith in God, she's someone who's prepared to step out in faith as well. And she shows us that right there. This is a picture of God's providence. Remember, God's providence is both His sovereignty and His goodness on display. You see, providence is something you see after the fact. God's miracles are something you see right then and right there. You see, providence is God's invisible hand that we only see in hindsight. God's miracles are something that we see right there and right before us. Providence is where, yes, God is working, but oftentimes, almost every time, He's working by using us and our choices, our decisions, our movements. So if you want to see God's hand at work in your life, move. Be about God's work. Do, just do something. I'm thankful that Ruth says, look, we're poor. We're back in Bethlehem. We ain't got no father. We have no husband. We have no sons. And in their day and age, their society was dependent upon this. We've got to do something. We're not going to see any good come toward us if one of us doesn't do something. Naomi, will you give me permission? And so Naomi does. Naomi does. And not only does she give her permission, she tells her, go, my daughter. Verse 3. So she, speaking of Ruth, 
set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she just so happened. She just so happened to come to the part of the field belonging to guess who? Yeah. Boaz. She just so happened to not only go out and reap, but guess what field she's gleaning from? Boaz's. Luck? Chance? Circumstance? Happenstance? Nah. Karma? Nah. Nah. We call it providence. Providence. Yeah, to us it looks very random. It looks very coincidental. But it's God. What the world says is luck. We say, look at God. Look at God. You'll notice this all throughout this book. It just so happened. It just so happened that Ruth and Naomi leave Moab. It just so happened that harvest time came around. It just so happened that Boaz was Naomi's distant relative. It just so happened that the field that Ruth eventually ended up at ended up belonging to Boaz. It just so happened. What's, what's the big idea here? Nothing in your life is random. Nothing in your life is by chance. God is using everything in your life and in mine to work out for your good and for His purposes because you love God. If you belong to Christ, if you're a child of God, the Apostle Paul says, all things are working together for good. It may not be good, but it's working together for good for those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. We already saw Ruth gave her life to Jesus, if you will. Ruth committed her life to Naomi's God. Ruth belongs to God. And as a result of that, God is already beginning to use both Ruth and Naomi for His purposes. And now we see this encounter take place. Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Imagine that. How many of us at our jobs have employers, have bosses, where every morning as soon as you show up on the job, they say, God bless you. The Lord bless you. The Lord be with you. Not. How many of us have bosses like what we see with Boaz? Many of us are, are tempted to say, Nah, I got the devil. <laughs> As a boss, my boss is not generous or kind or walking with God. And that, my boss has a tail and he has horns. But Ruth and these men have a generous boss, a boss who, who knows God, a boss who, who walks with God, a boss who has a reputation and a character that's known for knowing God. And here he says, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Imagine sitting in your cubicles. And, and this is the back and forth thing that you're used to, where everybody's just blessing one another. This is foreign, but this is the context that Ruth has, has come in. You see God's favor? You see God's hand? The environment that he's bringing Ruth into, this is what God can do for, for all of us. Verse 5, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers, answered. And he says to, to Boaz, she's the young Moabite 
woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Notice already that apparently Ruth and Naomi have a reputation. They've been known somehow or another. The servant is able to say something about Ruth. And here he reports to his supervisor, to, to Boaz, a bit of what he knows Ruth to be, which is important. I want us all to keep this in mind. And what's that? Your life is always live. Your life and my life is always on display to be seen by others and for others to be able to draw one kind of conclusion or another from. And I hope what that means to you is this, that as you and I lead our lives, as we live our lives, we're living in such a way that we want to be sure, if eyes are on us, that what they see are lives of character and a reputation that we could withstand scrutiny. I think that's important. A lot of times I've, I've seen both in myself, if I give to the temptation and with others, and maybe this could be the case with, with some, is this. This is the temptation that you and I have to fight. We're prepared to be that, which we see in Ruth and Boaz, once we notice eyes are on us. But that could be too late for that job that you're looking for. That could be too late for that ministry opportunity that you want to see open up for you. That could be too late for that woman that you're hoping will have eyes on you or that man that you're hoping you could pursue a relationship with. You see, when someone has to make a decision with you, they're not necessarily looking at who you are right here and right now. They're interested in knowing who you've been. See, a lot of times when we set out to date, dating could be very unreliable because he and she know that they're both on, if you will. And so long as I know I'm on, I'm going to be on my best behavior on every date. Well, the problem is, you're really, if you're a woman, you're not getting the best picture of who I actually am. What you want to know is who I would be two weeks after honeymoon. What you want to know is who I was well before you came into the picture. And the same goes for, for the woman, for the guy. You see, if I'm an employer and I want to hire employees that I can trust in and that are going to bring value to my company, I don't want to just know who this guy or gal is sitting in my office that i got to interview right now based on what comes out of their mouth. That's why we, get, um, we do referrals. That's why we ask for references. That's why we want our prospective employees submitting resumes because we want to see a track record. We want to see a reputation and a character and a performance that precedes them. Yes, I want that to be true of them right here and right now, but if that's all I got, that's not enough. Because that can easily go as, as soon as it came. If, if I'm going to want to bring on a pastor or bring on a ministry leader onto my team, I'm not going to want to just merely go off of who, they saying, who they're saying they are right here and right now in front of me. I want to call their pastor and their previous pastor. I want to call every other church they've been a part of. I, I, I want to know who's been a part of this person's life and what can they tell me about them over the past three, five years. You see, they're not just seeing who Ruth is right here and right now and reporting to Boaz. They're giving a report to Boaz 
based on what has preceded Ruth all this time. I think that's important for you. And so perhaps you're somebody who's been sitting back. Maybe there are areas of your life that need to develop in your character. Maybe there are things in your life that you need to get together. Uh, perhaps there are decisions that you need to make, but you've been thinking, you know what, they're, they're good, they're necessary, they're important, but I thought I could wait on them as soon as that job calls me. Well, that's too late. I thought I can wait to prioritize those things as soon as that ministry opportunity opens up for me. But what about the other person who's about all these things right now? You, you don't think they're going to go with that person and not with you? Uh, well, well, maybe you think these things are important or valuable, but you can't wait for a last-minute opportunity to begin to develop in these ways. Now is that time, is what Ruth is life and their report to Boaz teaches us. In verse 7, we're told that he said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves. And so here, Ruth finally opens up and talks to Boaz. So here we have our, our first encounter in the story between Ruth and Boaz. Verse 7, Ruth says, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. You see, what is important at this point is the fact that in the Old Testament times, in Leviticus in 19, there was a custom that God, a law that God had given His people. And the law stated that farmers and the people of God, when they reaped from the harvest, they were supposed to leave what remained for, for strangers, for those who are poor, and for those who are needy, and for those who are immigrants, and for those who are widows. You see, God wove within His law His grace and in His kindness. You see, His law looked out for those who are less fortunate in our society. And that's important. That's a beautiful picture. I think we can, we can use this. I know we're, we're in this crisis season right now, and it's amazing as we, as we look at our news programs and we see people storming into Walmarts and Costcos, um, hoarding toilet paper and goods and items, not leaving anything for the next person. So much so that uh, stores and departments have had to actually have signs in place. Please only take one package of water, only one pack of toilet paper. What does that say about us? in our sinful hearts. What does that say about what we have failed to heed from God's Word? You see, God was ahead of the game all along, and He's looking out for us. And He's telling these people, don't hoard. Yes, go out and reap for yourselves and for your families. Go out and collect because you need to live and be sustained, but make sure you shave off the corners of your fields and leave them for those who are going to be in need and who are less privileged than you. In fact, even after you pick up and collect, and if something were to drop, don't pick it up. Collect it. Leave it for those who will come after you. You see, this was their, if you will, social service system that was in place. They didn't have systems and services like, like we do. And so in Leviticus 19 and 9, God said, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. 
you shall leave them for the poor. See that? And for the sojourner, the stranger, the person who's foreign to your land, I am the Lord your God. See that? So, in a sense, Ruth knows that this is her right. She knows that this is in their law. They have to obey their God. But even though she knows it's her right, she asks anyways. Isn't that beautiful? She asks anyways. And Boaz, after she says, so she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth. So now Boaz is about to speak. Now, listen, my daughter. Do not go to, to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Isn't that beautiful? Boaz tells her, look, you've, you've come to the right place. We have everything that you're going to be in need of. We're going to look after you. I've heard about you. I've heard about your story. I've heard about your conversion. I've heard about how you came to God. I heard about how you've looked after your mother-in-law. I've, I've heard how of your, your, Ruth, your character, like I said before, and your reputation has preceded you. In fact, I don't, I don't even need to hear anything from you. Your story has already been told. I, I hope that could be said of you and me in our lives. That as soon as we're being introduced to people, before we even open up our mouths about ourselves, our story has already been told. Uh, oh, I've heard about you. Oh, I've heard great things about you. Let me ask you a question. If you were to imagine people were to have to say something about you, either in front of you or in front of others about you, what would it be? Would it be positive or negative? In Ruth's case, it's nothing but positive. Ruth wasn't asking for this. She wasn't doing it so that she'll hear this sort of praise from people. She was doing it for, well, the reasons you and I should do it for, simply because of how good God has been toward her. And guess what? God is paying her back. God is rewarding her commitment and her loyalty and her service to Him by the sort of way people are prepared to treat her, beginning with Boaz. Same is for you. God will reward those kind acts. There's no, no cup of cold water that you give, Jesus says, in my name, that I will not reward. God will reward it. You see, that's God. God tells us to not grow weary in well-doing. Because in due season, we will reap, <laughs> no pun intended, if we don't faint. We will reap. You see, God wants you to be about doing good, trusting that He knows how to get the news of your life and your testimony and your character and your reputation to the ears and to the eyes and the hearts of the people who need to know it. Boaz needed to know it. Isn't that beautiful? That you and I don't need to... to to go about things the way that the world does to be able to get attention. I mean, look at social media all over the place and the way in which people out of desperation want to get likes and follows, want to get people to, to be fans and followers. It's kind of sad, isn't it, how much we're prepared to put ourselves out there out of desperation. That's not Ruth. Ruth was, would have been perfectly fine had Boaz never said, what we just heard him say. Why? Because she was doing it for the right reasons. The Bible and Proverbs says that a man's ministry shall make room for him. Isn't that beautiful? 
Ruth's ministry to Naomi, she would have been perfectly fine if the only person in her congregation, so to speak, was Naomi. Ruth would have been perfectly fine if the only person that she was supposed to influence or impact or serve or, or whose life she was supposed to make a difference in was Naomi. Because after all, that's all she had. But look how God chose to multiply. God saw Ruth's life, Ruth's loyalty, Ruth's love, and Ruth's sacrificial commitment. And he said, more people need to get wind of this. This commitment, this life cannot begin and end with how Naomi is being blessed by it. I want more and more people to be touched and reached by it. God can do that with you. God's doing that with Ruth. And Boaz says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. I want to I provide for you. I want to take care of you. But notice how Boaz provides by bringing women into her life. Boaz says, look, I want you to be surrounded by a community group, a life group of women. I want you to have women who, who, could, who could be there and journey together and do life together with you. You see, God saw Ruth by herself, but he said, you know what? All that is about to change. I'm about to bring the right sort of... Boaz didn't just bring any sort of women along. Boaz saw Ruth and her character and her reputation, and he looked and he saw the kind of women that matched in their character and in their reputation, Ruth's character and reputation. That's what God will do. God's not going to just bring anybody into your life, men, any sort of men. Women, God's not going to bring just any sort of women into your life. He's going to bring the ones that are going to serve what He's been up to in your life. You better be sure. One of the ways you could know that the people who are in your life are supposed to be in your life is the point I'm getting from this story is this, that they're actually helping advance God's purpose in your life. They're not hindering God's purpose from taking place in your life. Maybe you and I need to take a good hard look at the people who are in our life. Are they helping or hurting? Simple question. Boaz was going to introduce these women into Ruth's life, not to hurt her, but to what? Yeah, to help her. Even more, he goes on and he says, verse 9, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Isn't that beautiful? This is our first instance, I think, in the Old Testament where we have a, a sexual harassment policy. He says, look, is it not the case that, that I've pulled these men, these blue-collar workers that I have in the field? I know they, they see you. I know they know you're hot. I know that it may be a challenge for them to have to work alongside a beautiful woman like you, not just outside, but also inside. But know this, which also speaks to, what do we say Boaz was? He was a worthy man. Isn't that what the text says in verse 1? A worthy man. He was a man of valor, a man of character. And he showed that character how? But as soon as he saw Ruth and what she had going for herself, he says, i got to have a talk with these men. Look, we got a special woman that's just come into our church, if you will. That's come into our community. That's entered into this field. That's been hired on. I need you guys to understand something. And he gives them this talk, if you will. Not a single one of you men are going to lay a hand upon her. She's going to be safe in this community. She's going to be safe in this context. She's going to be safe in this community. I think that's important. 
I mean, that's, that's, that's a case study for us men. Men, I want all of us, our, our women, knowing that when they be, come into our churches and when they become a part of our community, they can know that they're safe among the men in our group, among the men in our congregation. Women need to know that the context that they come in, I think this is important because perhaps there are women who, who have a, a background or a context where maybe you had a parent who abused you. Maybe you have an uncle or, or some distant relative who sexually abused you or verbally abused you. Or, or perhaps you have a situation where you've, you've had awful dating relationship experiences or you've been in marriages where, that went horrible. And now you're having to go forward, leaving that behind you, but having to recognize that you have scars. And the last thing that you want to do is come into a context, whether it's a church or a faith community, only to find out that you're around those same kind of men. That's not what we need. What our world needs is an alternative portrait of manhood. Yes, men are strong. Yes, our men should be men of war. But they should also be men who are prepared to be safe men. That's my prayer, beginning with myself. I want every woman to know that the men who come into this community and become members of our churches can be known by the women as safe. Boaz was a safe man. And he wanted to make sure that the men who were hired on and who were his workers were safe men. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2. I want you to treat the other women in all purity. Treat the other women with all purity. As sisters. I think that's important. We want to treat them as sisters. And Boaz communicates this to her. Not only that, he goes on and he says, Then she fell, verse 10, on her face, bowing to the ground. And said to him, Why? Why have I found this favor in your eyes? You should take notice of me. Since I'm, all I am is a foreigner. Isn't that beautiful? Notice, Ruth doesn't say, It's about time I'm getting treated the way I deserve. It's about time somebody sees this. It's about time somebody has the idea and the, and, the, and the nerve to finally treat me the way I've been telling people I deserve to be treated? No. We, we don't see Ruth for all we could tell all throughout this story as someone who had given attention to her tragedy, as someone who has fixated upon her hardship, as someone who had been pouting and complaining and murmuring about the challenges that have come her way to God. No. Hear a word. In fact, what we find here in this text is a question, which is her response. Her response is a question to Boaz. She, she experiences all of this favor coming from Boaz to her. Right? He's like, look, I'm going to make sure you're, you're taken care of. This field and, and this property and, and everything within my eyesight belongs to you if it belongs to me. Um, you need water? My men are going to provide for you. Yes, it was the custom of women to give men to drink. She says, no. Boaz says, no, I'm going to give 
I'm going to give you drink. You need women. You need sisters to do life together with you, to walk together with you. I'm going to make sure you have the right sort of women together with you. And she looks at all of this grace, all of this favor. You see, Boaz could have easily stopped at the point of, all right, go on ahead and and get what belongs to you from each and every one of these corners, but that's about it, and go. No, he doesn't. That would have been law. Boaz goes beyond law to grace. And he says, look, I want you in my house. I want you at my table. I, I want you to know that there's a chair with your name on it. I want you to know that I will, if you are thirsty, you will be provided for. I want you to know if you need women and sisters to walk with, I know just the right ones. I want you to know that I've spoken to the men. Not a single hand will be laid upon you. Not a single man will seek to take advantage of you out of their own selfish interests. There's no romantic attraction at this point, as far as we could tell. As far as we can tell, Boaz isn't trying to score with her, if you will. It seems like Boaz is, is doing what he would do with, with any woman. Boaz is talking this way and treating Ruth in this way simply because it appears that's the way he talks to any woman. That's the way he treats every woman. That's beautiful. I don't know about you, but I'm imagining when a woman encounters this, because a lot of times what, the one thing women have, and I've, I've heard this over and over again, the one thing women always have to vet and, and look beyond and assess is, why is he texting me? Why is he extending this sort of kindness toward me? Why is he going out on a limb? What does he want from me? And Boaz here is, Not interested in in offering, getting anything from her. He just simply wants to be this way. And Ruth says, why? This is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of a true Christian. Let me ask you a question at this point. Is that you? The day you came to Christ? Even if you're years into your faith in Christ, is that you now? Or are you more like, it's about time... God saved me. It's about time I'm a Christian. It's about time God is doing these things from me. Or do you recognize that every good and perfect gift comes down from above? Are you the type of person like Ruth who's prepared to say, God, why are you so good to me? Why the favor? Why the kindness? Why are you showering me? Why your presence? Why do I deserve your presence? Why do I get to enjoy your people? Because that was Ruth. You see, Ruth is modeling for us what should be all of our response toward Christ and toward the gospel and toward our good and gracious God. Why? Rather than, you see, my problem, our problem should not be why suffering, why trouble. That's not my issue. Why all of the good things? Why all of this grace? Why all of this favor? It it should not surprise me when my life is marked by challenge and why my li- when my life is marked by trouble. It should surprise me when God wants to meet my life with His goodness and His grace. And Ruth is modeling just that. And so she goes on and, and she says, and he says in verse 11, but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me 
and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord, Boaz is about to pray for Ruth in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done. The entire book of Ruth is is just filled with prayers. And you know something else? Every single prayer in the book of Ruth is a prayer not about the person or for themselves. It's always a prayer for someone else. Boaz here is praying for Ruth. And he says here, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz basically, essentially is saying, Look, I'm praying for God's blessing upon your life. I pray you get married. I pray you, you find children and you have children. I pray you, you get a home and you establish a home. I pray that your entire future is still ahead of you despite what has already taken place. Guess what? Boaz is not only praying for Ruth. Boaz is the answer to his own prayer for Ruth. Notice, Boaz is praying that Ruth be married. He is that husband. Boaz is praying that Ruth have children. They end up eventually, hate to disclose the story, having children. Boaz is praying that Ruth have a home and find a home and establish a home. They're going to establish a home together. You see, prayer does one of two things. Prayer either moves the hand of God or it changes my heart. That's what's happening at any time. Prayer, the purpose of prayer is maybe not to change anything outside of me or externally, but if anything, to change my own heart. A lot of times in my prayer life as I pray, more than God answering what I want Him to do, rather it has to do with me changing and aligning myself with God's character and God's ways and God's purposes. Other times, prayer is actually moving the hand of God. In other words, God uses our prayers to accomplish His purposes. His end is the outcome, but His means is you. It's me, and it's our prayers. What am I saying? Stop just praying about that thing. Be prepared. If you're going to be daring enough to pray, be prepared to be daring enough to be the answer to those prayers, is what I'm saying. A lot of times people will say, God, we need more people on the streets witnessing. Well, are you prepared to witness? God, we need more people out there being about the gospel and and sharing the love of Christ with people. Well, are you prepared to, to share the gospel and be that love of Christ with people? God, these people need to stop being neglected. I want to see people paying attention to them for a change. Well, when's the last time you've paid attention to that person and let them know that they're loved? You see, it's not enough for me to just pray. I've got to also recognize that God may tag me and tap me on the shoulder and say, are you prepared to be my means to an answer to that prayer? Because until we are, we're really not praying. Boaz is prepared to be that means. And lastly, as we close, what do we see here? Verse 13, she responds, Naomi's response. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. 
I got favor. Why this favor? I can't believe I'm getting this favor from your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly, the Bible says, to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Isn't this beautiful? As sad as things may have been in the beginning, notice how God is turning things around for her good, just like in your case. You see, this is the good news that you and I have to hold on to. There's hope. You see, friend, I want to leave this with you. Family, I want us to hold on to this because this is what Ruth had to hold on to. The favor of God. Have you experienced it lately? Do you know it experientially? Because God is prepared to offer it to you today if you're prepared to open up and receive it in the same way Ruth did. You see, just as Boaz went out to survey his field that he's an owner of, Jesus left heaven in order to survey his field, the earth. Just as Boaz found and and saw Ruth out there in the field, Jesus found and saw you in your sin and in your folly and in your rebellion and and was prepared to receive you. Boaz, just as Boaz pursued Ruth out of a love and a regard for her, so Jesus has pursued you out of a love for you. Boaz, out of a love and an interest for Ruth, by speaking kindly to her, Jesus has spoken a kind word to you. Just as Boaz went beyond the law to grace Jesus in the gospel, in the New Testament, has gone beyond the law, hallelujah, all the way to grace in order to receive you. And what was Ruth's response? It's what should be all of our responses. One of favor. How is it that I am in a position to be able to receive all of this favor? God's looking for this heart of gratitude from you and from me, like he found it in Ruth. And so I want to close here at the, at the end here by inviting you to take these next few moments. We're going to close this live stream and this message, but that doesn't mean that God is done with you and with me. I think he's only going to begin as soon as this live stream is over. I want to encourage you to take a moment and draw near to God and say, God, you see, Ruth is a picture of us as Christians who we were, we're sinners, we're rebels, we're fallen, we're, we're needy, and we're hopeless, and we have nothing to offer our God. And we, we, we come from a land that's foreign, and we don't belong. But Boaz is a picture of Jesus Christ who is prepared to receive us anyhow. We have a Boaz today, and Jesus is that greater Boaz. I hope you're prepared to receive him if you didn't know him at all. And even if you do, I hope you're prepared to walk even closer and deeper in a relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now thanking you that even though we were far from you and from your promises, even though we were strangers to your promises, even though we were strangers to the gospel, you, by the blood of your Son, brought us near. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for all of the favor 
that you have lavished our lives with. God, we don't deserve any bit of this. Nevertheless, we are thankful to you. And Lord, we do pray that like we saw through the life of both Boaz and Ruth, we pray for ourselves that our reputation and that our character precedes us. That if anyone has anything to say about myself or my brother or my sister, it's not negative, it's good. I pray, Lord God, that we would, like Ruth, let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and thereby glorify our Father who is in heaven. Lord, I'm praying that we recognize that there's a greater Boaz in our midst, and his name is Jesus. And God, we thank you for being all of these things and more to each and every one of us. Lord, I pray that we treasure these truths and that with this up-and-coming week, that we go forward ready to live out of this identity of ours in Christ. Lord, bless your people. God, be with your people. Father, keep every one of your people. And we thank you for your word and this time that you've given us. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.